You're listening to episode 23 of Femlong. I'm your host, Katie Davey, and today we chat with Susan Holt about a variety of things. She was so generous with her time and with the information she shared with us, Um, but broadly we talked to her about running in the last New Brunswick provincial election, some of the decisions that she made leading up to that decision and afterwards, and some of the challenges and learning experiences that um, she gained from the experience overall. We wanted to really highlight some of these experiences as we continue to move forward with our A Woman's Places in the House campaign. We think it's so important leading up to the 2019 federal election to continue to have this dialogue about the need for more women and folks with diverse lived experiences in our House of Commons. So that's really why we dug in with Susan today. Like I said, she was so generous with her information and time. I hope you really enjoy the episode. If you haven't had a chance to get your hands on one of our t-shirts, please feel free to head over to femwonk.com slash Bye. Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have this conversation, I think particularly timely. Uh, And I'll first just ask if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks, Katie. Uh, My name is Susan Holt. I uh, live in Fredericton. I currently work as the VP of Strategy and Communications for uh, a pair of companies called PQA and Play-Doh Testing. But I think the reason that I'm here is because I was the Liberal candidate for Fredericton South in the 2018 New Brunswick elections, right? 2018? Good heavens. Uh, and uh, have been a, a longtime lover of New Brunswick, uh, mom of three past or former CEO of the New Brunswick Business Council, CEO of the Fredericton Chamber of Commerce, uh, and yeah, all around lover of politics and policy uh, and seeing more women elected. Amazing. I think with that background, we'll have such a great conversation today around like really the overall conversation about ensuring that women are and have access to leadership positions broadly. So I really look forward to that. Um, I kind of had to laugh. You tripped up a bit on 2018 when I did the same thing when I was calculating uh, that the election was about 10 months ago now, which is crazy to me. Yeah, when I said it, I thought, wait a second, was that when it was? (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? It it both seems like it was yesterday and also pretty far away at the same time, or pretty far in the past. Um, But actually, thinking about that and thinking about the fact that the provincial election in New Brunswick was 10 months ago, hopefully you've you've had an opportunity to think and reflect a bit about what that experience was like for you running for the first time. Uh, So I'd love to know if you kind of with that 10-month gap, I guess, um, have any kind of biggest lessons learned or biggest takeaways overall from that experience? Mm, I mean, so many. There was so much learning um, that it's hard to sort of pick one thing. But uh, I think one of the one of the main things I learned is that there is no time or space for nuance in an election campaign, uh, which is really hard for us policy wonks um, to to learn that you have to be blunt, direct, simple um, when you're campaigning. You have to ask for help and ask for support directly. Uh, and so that that whole process of getting more comfortable asking for help and asking people to vote for me was a process and it took time. There was a few others, right, that, that, that go together with that, right? The need to be bold, um, the need to be brave and to recognize that 
you can't please everyone. So you just have to be true to yourself and speak up um, with what you think and what you feel. And then maybe the more painful lesson was learning that um, it's not about you as a candidate, <laughs> that you, the leader, the party, all of that blends into sort of one thing in the eyes of the voter. And so um, learning how to navigate in that space where um, where your individual agency is is blurred was was a big learning experience. Yeah, I can imagine. I think that that's probably something a lot of folks face, particularly first time candidates and particularly candidates that have had a longer, um, I guess, stint perhaps in leadership roles in other areas as well. Uh, so I think that's a really interesting lesson. You also mentioned being bold and brave. I think that's very timely in Fredericton right now um, with Councillor Kate Rogers, uh, the one and only uh, woman that serves on the council uh, in Fredericton, speaking out about how she's been, she really feels that she's been facing um, both sexism and barriers, being the only woman in council around the council table, and even just more broadly with kind of the way that um, the council is appointing committees and the way that a senior staff is asked, uh, senior staff, sorry is acting um, and actually i saw your partner john tweeted about that and tweeted about how happy he was that she spoke out um, being the father of three young girls hoping again to have them grow up in a more equitable world uh, i'd love to know your perspective again on on being so proudly Fredericktonian um, and seeing kate speak out in that way i'm i'm super proud of kate uh, because i know uh, a little bit maybe about how it feels for her um, to be tired, to be tired of having to carry this mantle of being the one who has to point it out, who has to speak out and who has to object to say, no, hang on, this isn't right. This isn't an appropriate you know, committee makeup. We need to consider um, and prioritize gender balance, right? And, and because this absolutely was not the first time that Kate has brought that up. This may be the first time that she's brought it up this publicly, but I could hear the the sort of fatigue and frustration in her voice, and I felt some of it too. I felt the frustration that why why does it why does it always have to be the lone woman at the table who has to raise these things? And I think you and I have both probably sat in those meetings where we've thought, is anybody else going to bring this up? Am I going to bring it up again? I know I'm going to get the eyeball rolls. I know people are going to say, oh yeah, okay, fine. So. So I, you know, I'm proud of her. I'm glad that she did it because doing it helps advance the conversation, even if it makes the person who speaks up um, more vulnerable. And I, I kind of, I've also shaken my head a little bit at the reaction because anybody in, in this day and age, anybody who thinks that any woman in a position of leadership and particularly one in a male dominated environment, whether that be politics or council or the police or the tech sector, anyone who thinks that those women no longer experience gender bias has got their head in the sand, right? <laughs> like this hasn't gone away. We haven't won and we haven't eradicated sexism. And so I'm a little surprised that people are surprised by Kate describing what she's experienced. Um, yeah, I totally agree. And I think we were actually at um, a conference together a few months ago where Kate was on a panel and she explained exactly the same thing that she's really been saying publicly this past week um, to, at the conference, like that she has been facing these barriers and how tired she was at that time. And also, um, I think something that a lot of women also face when they get to leadership roles like that, which is 
they experience those eye rolls and they experience that fatigue. And so sometimes they just say like, okay, I, I can't do it anymore. Um, and I, that's something that I think we've all faced. And I remember hearing Kate describe that and being like really overwhelmed by the fact that, again, like you just said in 2019 in Fredericton, a city that honestly, like I think some folks would say is, is a fairly progressive city, um, that at this decision-making table, the the one woman is really taking on the full responsibility of being that voice and providing that voice and like I remember actually even just seeing the list of the makeup of this particular committee um, in reference the Fredericton Exhibition Grounds Development Committee and I remember thinking to myself reading the list like I counted all of the members that the Fredericton that Fredericton City put forward and I counted they're all men but the um, the Fredericton Exhibition Grounds actually did put forth gender parity. They put forth two men and two women to be their representatives. So I thought that was very interesting, again, mm -hmm. um, because, like, the women exist. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I agree. I was really happy that Kate spoke out, but I think you made such a great point, too, that that does bring a certain vulnerability uh, for her. And so I think it's important that us, as a community, really, tries to, to help her champion this initiative as well and try to support her bringing forward that um, that vulnerability. Well, I think it demonstrates something that has been reinforced for me in the work that I'm doing now, that balance is an important word here, right? Having one woman on council is good, um, but it's not good enough. And having one woman on a committee certainly helps to bring a certain perspective but it's not enough because when you are alone as the minority in a room or around a table, um, it's it's really hard and you end up bearing a burden that if you had another person like you or a third person like you, all of a sudden that burden is shared, you have community. So we can't just stop and say, okay, you know, we've, we've gotten some women elected and we've gotten some women in these places. Um, we need to have that tipping point. And I think maybe it was you that, that explained to me at one point that it's over the 30% mark, right? If you can get over the 30% mark, then you've got something that can really then start to, to affect change. But just one woman around any particular table um, is not good enough. You know, in this day and age, we, it, it has to be more because people like Kate are carrying a great weight uh, and we need to... Um, we need to spread that around. No, absolutely. And again, if we want the folks making decisions on our behalf um, to really be empowered to do that, then I think the folks making decisions on our behalf should look more like the people they're making decisions on behalf of, <laughs> right? And that's whether whether it's, you know, the fact that women make up 50% of the population or, again, whether that, you know, newcomers, folks of color, folks living with disabilities, Indigenous peoples, like all of these people live in our community. And so, you know, the fact that our council, and it's not, of course, not just Fredericton, this is a case at every single level. Um, and I think another piece that's kind of interesting is, you know, you've seen statistics as well that women um, have to have 100% of the qualifications before they'll even, you know, apply for a job. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's probably very similar, I mean, framed a bit differently, but with running for politics, like I've often heard women say, you know, they need more experience or they want to wait until they get their master's or until they've, you know, served on this many boards or, or done this, this many other things. Um, I wonder if you had a similar feeling like that, if you kind of felt that need 
um, or heard other other women or other folks running in the election say similar things like that. Yes, and yes. So uh, that was absolutely the case for me. I think I was first asked to consider or to run politically uh, in 2011. And I didn't feel ready then. Uh, and I was asked in 2014 and 2015 and 2018. And so I wasn't, I was unsure and did not feel that I was sufficiently um, knowledgeable or prepared to run in those times until finally um, in 2018, I felt like I um, had enough sort of perspective and understanding to be effective. And I think, um, I think I have mixed feelings about it, I guess, because I do want people, women, when they're choosing to run, to really feel sort of confident and prepared for the challenge that it is. But I think we need to reframe the qualifications piece. So I, you know, I think I think what it actually means to be qualified to be an effective politician uh, doesn't have a ton to do with your educational background or your work experience at all. I think it has much more to do with um, your your soft skills, right? Your ability to to synthesize information, to ask good questions, to build consensus, to compromise, to communicate effectively, and to make thoughtful decisions um, where you know where compromise is required. So, I would I would challenge women to assess their qualifications on that basis, as opposed to on the basis of you know the years of experience they may have or their knowledge of any particular policy file or department or, you know, thing. Uh, because to me, a qualified uh, political representative is somebody who cares about the people they're serving, and who will listen and engage openly and authentically with those people. Yeah, I think that's so bang on. And actually, my follow up question to you was going to be, would you have any advice for women thinking they're not, if they don't <laughs> have the right qualifications, but I think you just answered that perfectly. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I know, like, it's it's crazy, because you don't, like, literally the qualifications to be an elected official are threefold. One, you have to be a Canadian citizen. Two, you have to be 18 years old. And three, you have to win the most votes. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's like you said, right, the legislature benefits when when we have a diverse group of people in it who have diverse qualifications. And I think there are absolutely some things you have to have, but I think those things are passion right? Service, um, that, that sort of overarching mission to serve. Um, because if you don't have your clear sort of why answered, then the system will probably eat you alive. But um, we, need, we need a diverse set of experiences in those rooms. And so I think if women look at who's around the table and where those people are coming from and the different backgrounds that they have, they will find themselves um, that their passion and their interest in doing it is sufficient to make them well qualified. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, and I think another barrier that women, particularly more so than men, often cite um, as a challenge for them to run is is caring for children. And I think you have a very unique um, experience with this based on the time in which you ran, which so you're a mother of three amazing kids and they're now, I think Molly's seven, the oldest, so all yeah, under- Page is yeah, five and Brooke is uh Brooke's not quite two yet, so right. And so when you launched your campaign, um Brooke would have been just just new yeah. to the world. <laughs> um so I'd love your kind of thought I don't know, yeah, I, I would love just to hear, I guess, your experience with that, 
um, and what that looked like for you and why mm. you felt that that was, um, you know, that it was still the right time for you um, to run with, again, having quite a quite a full household for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people thought I was insane. Um, and certainly I had <laughs> I had moments of legitimate insanity throughout the process. Um, but oddly enough for me, it was because of the kids that I could do it. So, you know, maybe this is a unique case for me. Um, and and I'll, I'll put a big caveat around this, right? I'm really privileged. Um, and, you know, maybe we all are as Canadians to have access to things like maternity leave. Um, so, so for me, as the primary income earner in our house, um, and having had been run, asked to run in the 2014 election when I was just about to deliver. So I, I literally delivered Paige in May of 2014 and the election was that October or September, I think. So I had decided at that time that no, I can't do it, right? I can't have a one, two, three month old baby and be campaigning and door knocking and then contesting an election with a you know four month old. At the time I, I made that decision thinking this is, I'm not gonna, I can't pull that off and I don't want to, right? I wanted to put all my attention into this second child of mine. And I'm confident I would have made the exact same decision for my first child. So so context is that she was, Brooke was my third. I had a bit more familiarity with what I was doing. Um, I hadn't made the decision to run prior to her birth, partly because I, I did want to have her and know what she was like, you know, and what circumstances we were gonna face um, with her, whether she was healthy, that kind of thing, before I made the decision. But then once we had her and once it was clear that she had, you know, 10 fingers and 10 toes and and we weren't facing any major uh, health challenges in her early days, we, I think we, I had this benefit of um, a year, a potential to take a year off um, and that my employment would give me this year of maternity leave, that the federal government would pay me maternity leave benefits so that the provincial government, my employer would top up um, that salary partly. So it was actually the only circumstances under which I felt I could run a campaign is that I had this sort of paid time off with um, my family. And so I, like, I don't know how I would have done it had I been working full time, right? To, to work full time and then to have kids at home and to fit in a campaign, I think would have been challenging. So for me, this idea that I have a, a paid year off, what am I going to do with it? If I wasn't running the campaign, what was I going to do? You know, I, I certainly would have, could have, did hang out with my children and baby Brooke came, you know, to nomination meetings and to phone calling nights and door knocking and all of those things. But that's much easier to do actually with an immobile child who doesn't eat solid food. Um, so, so for me, strangely enough, having Brooke when I did and the timing of having that sort of maternity leave year off made it, made it possible. Um, but I do want to add a, a big caveat here, right? Like John and I are really privileged to have three healthy kids uh, and we're also really privileged to have four healthy grandparents who are a part of our lives and a part of our kids' lives and who are really supportive and who provide those extra hands. And I recognize that that not everybody has that, that maybe very few people have that. I have an exceptionally su supportive partner, right? He's, he's home full time with our children. So I have something that maybe a lot of women don't. Um, and I exploited the heck out of it. <laughs> I, you know, and John was willing and he never would have done this if he hadn't been uh, agreeable. And it was absolutely um, a say that he was given, right? That this had to be a family decision, but he was all for it. Um, and the kids were bought in and my family was bought in. And so 
um, having a baby and the year off to hang with her and show her the world of campaigning uh, made it work for me. You raise a great point, like about the overall financial sustainability for a person deciding to run for office. And I don't think that's something we talk much about really publicly at all. Um, and I think it's just so important because not only, you know, typically you're asking a person to take at least one month off and they probably are not getting paid. In some cases, you know, maybe, I don't know, vacation time or, or, or something like that, they might doing it with their employer, but by and large, the general person, like you said, physically, financially could not take off the time needed to actually run a campaign. Um, I think that's so interesting. And you actually, um, I guess, grappled a little bit with this conversation and, and with the way, honestly, that some folks and perhaps some media may have twisted it um, mm. when you were considering potentially putting your name forward for the uh, liberal leadership. Um, I I thought that that was, again, like, I thought it was so brave, again, bold and brave, honestly, to raise that conversation about financial being a reality for people who want to be able to put their name forward for whatever kind of elected position. But um, you did get some pushback from that, if I recall. I'd love to know your perspective on that. Yeah, yeah, that was really interesting. And, you know, I, I I will say, I don't think it was malicious uh, at all. I think it highlights an inf unfortunate reality of our system is the, the expectation of the financial means of people who might be considering leadership and even politics in general, right? Because like you say, taking a month off is not something everybody can do. And finding a party that's willing to let their candidates only take a month off, right? That isn't pushing for nominations to happen as early as possible and pushing for candidates to be out campaigning full time months before the writ, right? That that I appreciate why they see the benefit in being out early, but um, that that there's only so many people who can do that. And I think so that was the same with the leadership. I inquired about what the salary would be um and encountered you know the first person i asked couldn't answer me he said oh well um uh well that's that's decided after the leader's chosen and i was like what do, you, what do you mean right how do how am i applying for a job and i i might get it and then find out what it's going to be paid i was like that's i, I you know let, let, okay let's ask somebody else and so went to another person and these are people who in my mind should know right you know party executive directors party presidents people who i assumed would have a sense of what they have paid previous leaders and what policy might be in place for that compensation um and i don't think it was unreasonable for me to to, to consider that right i i have a mortgage i have a car loan i have kids i have you know expenses and I wanted to make sure that I could cover our family's expenses um, without having to make sort of drastic changes to our living, you know, our accommodations or our living circumstances. So after I got those answers of, oh, well, look, um, well, we like we the, the new leader sets their own salary with the party after. I was like, oh, yuck, I don't want to do that. Like who who wants to then start a new job and possibly turn off their coworkers, their board, their whomever by negotiating a salary after they've been given the job like that just I didn't think that that was a good practice but I learned from some side comments and some things that people told me after that there's there's generally been an assumption or an expectation that folks have can manage uh, with the uncertainty and that I should have just trusted that the 
party would take care of it. And, you know, later I had people coming to me actually saying, no, look, we, 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 we can do this for you. We can give you this salary and this top up. And we know now that we have this, this money available, we can make it work for you. And after I had made the decision not to do it, that's kind of like, well, it's, it's too late folks. Like we, you should have a compensation system in place that, that exists regardless of who wins this contest. And so it was just a sign to me of organizational maybe immaturity as well as a system that's biased towards people who have wealth and who maybe don't need to ask these questions because they can either continue to earn money while they do these sorts of things or have a different access to to funds or support. So um, yeah, it was, it was unfortunate, but I, I mean, you know me, Katie, I, I like to give straight answers when the media asked like, why, you know, what are you considering? Um, and I listed it as one of the factors and they said, Oh, well, what's up with that? I said, Oh, well, here's, here's the case. Nobody can tell me what the salary is. Of course, that became the story. Um, and pe it's not people aren't comfortable talking about money. Uh, but I did get lots of support from some other female politicians. You would have seen Monica Barley came out in an article saying, yeah, good for her. This is this is a reality for folks, for moms, for women who run you know, household budgets and businesses and other things that a call to serve the province in a political role doesn't automatically equate to to martyrdom or to that kind of sacrifice, I guess. I just, I have to put my kids in my marriage and my family first. And I just wanted to make sure that we could cover what I thought were reasonable, a reasonable compensation. And so it was, yeah, it was unfortunate that those questions couldn't have been answered in a way that could have allowed me to make a, a different and clearer decision about whether to run for the leadership or not. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Like it very much from my perspective has a lot to do with with organizational bias overall, right? Like you see this in the legislature um, all the time too, right? People who are experiencing issues right now are the first people to experience them that way because nobody has ever been elected like them before. Kind mm -hmm. of thing. Like, and it's not really in the spades yet, but we do have, I, I think probably the most people elected right now with young kids that we ever have before and they're still not very many but um but I think like that is just such an important thing right like the party probably didn't have an answer because probably they'd never been asked the question before <laughs> yeah. right and again like that's too that goes back to like what you're saying about the the privilege that folks that typically take on these leadership positions perhaps um have and and again, like we can't expect to get more diverse candidates from whatever perspective elected if we don't address the systemic barriers that are keeping them away. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And I'm glad to see that we have more parents of young children in the ledge. Um, and ideally, we just the, the more diverse the legislature becomes, the better it will serve New Brunswickers. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, actually. Uh, Alberta is an interesting case study in that because under Rachel Notley, she had probably the most diverse caucus ever, and she, you know, appointed 50% of her cabinet as women. And I think she had three different members have babies while in office, which definitely breaks the record. <laughs> um, but it was like the first, you know, attorney general to ever have a baby while in office, the first, uh, so some, some of these things. So, of course, they had to completely adapt the way that they did business, uh, which is great. So hopefully, um, hopefully they're starting to create 
a bit of a roadmap of what that looks like for other legislatures across the country. Yeah, yeah, I think some of it is societal shift, right? We have to mm-hmm. we have to get better at responding more quickly to the changing times because, you know, I just had a call with somebody today, an employee of ours who's changing their work circumstances because they need more flexibility to care for a parent who is no longer independent in their home. And, you know, that is going to mean a change in their work hours. It's going to mean a change in a number of circumstances. And we have to be able to adjust because this is just the new reality of of society today. So we need nimble systems that sort of recognize and value the individuals and the people in it and and serving them with dignity and circumstances that would allow them to thrive. And so I think politics and leadership generally is no different. Absolutely. And so you're now doing some work with uh, a pretty amazing organization that really is centering um, their approach, at least with Plato, around economic inclusion for First Nations. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I work for PQA Testing and Plato Testing. So PQA was formed in 1997 as a software testing uh, IT services firm. And uh, did that for years up until 2015. It was successfully running an IT business based out of New Brunswick, but with offices beyond. And then you'll note the year 2015 was the year the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came out and the calls, the 94 calls to action. And I won't tell the long story, but you can find it if you watch uh, Walrus Talks and search Keith McIntosh. He'll tell the story of how he came to um, realize and internalize um, the inequity that First Nations in Canada experienced, First Nations and Métis and Inuit people, and decided that his contribution and his response to Call to Action 92 would be to create an Indigenous software testing company um, for lots of reasons. So, you know, not for charity or, or for philanthropy, but because there is a dramatic shortage of IT workers in Canada, some 182,000 um, vacancies forecast by the IT Council for 2019. And Indigenous populations here in Canada are the fastest growing demographic and the youngest demographic. So Keith put two and two together and said, I think I could train Indigenous people to be software testers and, you know, offer them an opportunity to work in a a professional environment, in a modern economy with gained technological skills that they could take anywhere that are quite transferable and meet my own business's sort of labor demands. Uh, and building this social purpose in actually helps us retain employees across both sides. Um, so Plato Testing is now an Indigenous-led, Indigenous-staffed software testing firm that brings software testing work to communities so that we can support um, the option for Indigenous people to live and work in their communities in, um, in full-time jobs that have the opportunity for them to progress. So we have 50 uh, 50 Indigenous software testers with Play-Doh right now in Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, uh, soon to be Regina. That training class started this week. They're on day four uh, where this is being recorded in Sault Ste. Marie, in Toronto, in Fredericton, and in Miramichi. Uh, and we find the demand from companies that want to have more Indigenous businesses in their supply chain is significant, that want to see more diversity in how their software is being assessed for both its accessibility, its quality, its user experience, um, is making this a win-win-win. And I've been learning a ton about the Inuit and Métis and First Nations uh, communities and people across our country. Um, And it's been really, really rewarding and really exciting. 
Yeah, it sounds amazing. And I think Keith is, is really such a leader on this. And he's been, I think, rewarded both um, probably intrinsically and, and extrinsically for sure. So I'm looking forward to really following along with the journey. And I love, I've been following all of your social media and things like that. And uh, I'm learning a ton just from following your social media. So I, I've really appreciated that. Yeah, thanks. Well, we're, we're trying to tell the story, right? And, and trying to create space actually where our, our team members can tell their story of what it has been like to, to become a tester, to go through this training, to now work. I think actually it goes back to what we were saying earlier. Um, it's one thing to be the person in your work environment. So when you're the only person, First Nations person in your um, team or call center or construction job or whatever it is, um, that that's pretty lonely and it's it can be pretty challenging. So I think there's something really valuable and hard to quantify about the teams that we're creating, you know, communities of First Nations and Inuit and Métis people working together on the same team who experience sort of a shared culture and a shared understanding and how that's impacting them and their own relationship with their culture. Uh, and it's also impacted how we work with our clients. So when we put a so Indigenous software testing consultant in with a client, we put them in in twos and threes so that they aren't that Kate Rogers, right? They're not that lone wolf fighting this battle. They're part of a team. They're part of a group of folks who can share that burden um, and and help break the way for the people that are going to come after them. So uh, it's been it's been really interesting to see the value of building this as a, a network and a team of 50 people and growing. You know, our, our ambitious goal is a thousand. We want a thousand Indigenous software testers in 20 communities across Canada because um, we think that will really move the needle in terms of certainly addressing the inequity that exists in the participation levels of Indigenous people in the technology sector um, and also chip away at um creating sustainable prosperity for, for Indigenous people and communities. So we talked about this new role, which I think sounds amazing, and it sounds like you're growing with the role as well, which is an awesome opportunity. Um, we talked about you running for the first time, which again, perhaps, you know, outside of your comfort zone a little bit in a new space. I think it is for a lot of people. Um, and then before that, really, you, you spent a lot of time in also in organizations that were probably fairly male dominated and homogeneous, to say <laughs> the least. <laughs> so, so I'd love to know, like, even just with your overall experience of the last year, year and a half, like, why is it like why is it so important to have inclusion in all leadership spaces? I mean, I think this is a hard question because to me it speaks to values. So I, I you know, I don't want to assume that we all have these universal values, but I think for those of us who want to reduce inequality, who want to advance uh, a more fair, a more just, a safer, a happier, a more pr prosperous society, we need diversity in leadership teams uh, in order to achieve that, right? We can't reduce inequality if we have unequal leadership teams. We're not going to make a more prosperous society where, you know, we're lifting people up a shared level, of, you know, a common standard without diversity at the leadership level. Um, you know, we just can't, no matter how good you are, no matter how good I am or you are or whatever, we we can't know what it's like to be in someone else's shoes um, or everyone else's shoes, I guess. So 
So to me, that's it. If we if we really want a, a better world, a happier world, then we need we need diversity because that diversity will help us make better decisions, better decisions for society. Yeah, I, I love what you said. We can't expect to know or like we can't expect to be in everybody's shoes. I think that is such an important message. I Yeah, I really like that. That's impactful to me. Well, I mean, we like to think that we're smart and that we can empathize yeah. and understand someone else's point of view. But, you know, our own biases and our own life experience and the longer you've been around, the more they're set, I think, you know, make it really hard to and, and you should no one's expecting you to. I guess that's the key. Right. No, no single leader should be expected to understand or appreciate where everyone else is coming from, uh, which is why they get advisors, they get boards of directors, they have teams, they have VPs. And so it's just recognizing that that diversity um, has to be a lot deeper than we used to think it was. It's not just diversity of skill set and professional, um, you know, segment. It's also diversity of life experience and diversity of uh, background and the whole, it's, it's diversity full stop. So. Our federal House of Commons has 28% women elected right now. There's federal election in about 100 days. What advice would you give to folks considering running that haven't made the decision yet? And I guess based on our conversation about Kate Rogers, it's another great time to plug that there's a municipal election coming up in New Brunswick, May 2020. So what advice would you give those folks as well, considering putting their name forward? Oh, so much, so much. So I would say if you are considering running, um, do it. <laughs> That's my simple advice. So I I would go back and do it again, even though I got trounced and I, you know, you know, it wasn't it wasn't even close, but it was an exceptionally valuable experience personally, professionally, like it just I would do it again in a heartbeat. It was life changing and and I've come away with nothing but sort of benefit from it. So uh, I think if you're if you're interested in having a, a once in a lifetime experience, hopefully maybe a twice or three times in a lifetime experience for some, do it. Um, and I will also say, once you do, if you if you step up and express that voice that you're interested in or that you're thinking of running, and you say it out loud, um, you'll be surprised by how many people will turn around and say they're here to support you. So let me say that explicitly. If you are living in Fredericton and you are considering running in the May 2020 election, I am here to support you and I will help you mount a campaign and run. So to all the women listening, if that's something that you're considering, know that you have at least me and I can pretty much guarantee that I can bring a few people um, on board with me to help you do that. Um, so that's the first thing. It's just, yeah, it's, it's to, to go for it and, and to, to learn to know that it is it will be a much more positive experience than maybe it appears to be because I know it looks scary and tough and there's no question that it is but it is definitively more good than bad uh, regardless of the result so that, that's my personal experience and then I have a whole bunch of advice for parties because I think that <laughs> I think if we want more more women to get involved in politics I think that there's lots of things that need to change about the system, about the partisan system that turns women away. Um, so I would love to see a shift broadly in our political systems um, that recognizes that it no longer should be, you know, you swallow, you grin and bear it, you, you know, you swallow your values for the sake of the team. 
um, just go along with it because everybody has to be in 100% agreement. You know, I don't think that's realistic. I don't think that's society. I don't think that's how families and friendships work. I think Canada is healthier when it has debate and differences of opinion expressed civilly and considered broadly. And so I think that our party culture needs to change in arguably all parties in this country. And we need to welcome more differences of opinion because I don't think women are coming in, if I can make this broad generalization, prepared to to stomach and to stomach some of the things that they might disagree with in order to be a team player. Um, and maybe maybe that's a sexist comment in and of itself, but I think we need to make more space for individuals and for people to have a diversity of points of view. Uh, and I think that that will make politics a much more interesting and appealing place for women to participate. That's bang on. And I will also say I'm with you on supporting anybody who wants to run in the municipal election in Fredericton. So two supporters here already. <laughs> yeah. Susan, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Uh, I think we covered a lot. Um, <laughs> I think it was a great job. It was a great conversation. And again, I think an important one as you lead into, well, I feel like it's always election season. So it's, it's yeah. broadly important. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I think that's a good point. Anybody who's thinking about running, it's never too soon to start talking about it, to start thinking about it, whether it's for the next municipal election, this federal election, the next provincial election after that, right? Those, there's, there's always time to, to talk to people like you and me uh, about experiences, to seek support, to, you know, to do that kind of stuff. So there's never, never a bad time to, um, to entertain going into politics. Agreed. Thanks so much for tuning in. We will be taking a few weeks break over the next month or so as the summer wraps up. We want to respect folks who are going on vacation and things like that, and we want to take a bit of time for ourselves. So we'll see you a little bit infrequently over the next few weeks. But again, thanks so much for tuning in. If you love this episode, please leave us a review. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow along with our conversation, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Femwalk.